This is sort of part sermon and part me sharing our hearts about something that we feel God's just leading us towards uh, as a church, or leading us back to, I guess, as a church. Um, one of the dilemmas that we face as a church with a, with a fairly small community, it's lovely being small, um, but resources can be stretched, and by resources it's not, it's not money, it's more time uh, resources. Uh, we have discipleship that we want to take place. Everybody needs discipled, and, and this last, probably this last few months, there's probably a slight increase in that, just with some new people come along to the church and the young guys that we'll meet with on Thursday nights. And there's a, there's a need, there's a hunger. There are people who want to sit and talk about Jesus. I want to learn how to follow Jesus. Um, there is evangelism and mission, getting out there and connecting with the community around us who don't know Jesus and don't know of his love and his goodness and his forgiveness and transforming power. There's pastoral care that is required uh, from time to time. For example, last weekend and on other occasions, people just need one-to-one pastoral care, support. They need, they need someone to go for a walk with them, to chat with them, to pray with them, to get a coffee with them, just to be there and to bring um, love and care into their situation. There is obviously teaching required as part of the, the life of the church. Community needs to be fostered and developed. You cannot, I believe, develop community merely with Sunday mornings. That that will not develop. The the community here is great. Sunday mornings are great. But there's a depth of community that I think we're called to as as the family of God that, that we want to push into more. And even our wider community, there is tremendous loneliness going on. An awful lot of people are lonely. Um, Mother Teresa is the first quote of the day. She said, Loneliness and the feeling of being unwanted is the most terrible form of poverty. Loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. And the UK, a couple of years ago, appointed a minister for loneliness. So there's a lady that works for the government and her title is Minister for Loneliness, politician. Uh, And loneliness is probably something that by default we would connect with older people like the the lady in the picture and we'd think well maybe somebody who's who's older is is more likely to be lonely but I think I'm learning a lot that loneliness affects an awful lot of younger people as well an awful lot these are issues that we need to address as a church that if we want to be effective we want to do pastoral care and discipleship and community and offer something for those who are lonely there are lots of different things that we want to do but there are time constraints and human resources that that we just don't have Uh, our leadership community in the church just in case you don't know or you need reminded we have four elders that's stefan and daniel and linda and me uh, we, we form the leadership of the church and then Stefan's wife Ruth and Daniel's wife Charlene also input a lot into our conversations, our prayer, our discussion, our kicking about ideas. And <clears throat> we all work and therefore we're very aware that our time can be limited. 
So we're trying to figure out, we've been praying and talking lately, and Linda and I have been talking lately a lot about all these different things, and as a leadership community, how do we address the, the needs? How do we provide discipleship for those who are keen at the minute just to sit down? These you know, three or four guys on a Thursday night, they just want to sit down with the Bibles open and talk about Jesus. Um, how, how, do we provide, how do we provide that for others in the church as well? How do, we, how do we do all this? Because if, if, we, if, if we run after people one-to-one, we very quickly burn out and, and live our lives in a manner that, that is unbiblical. This is sort of what table looked like in 2014. Uh, that is our kitchen table. That is grape juice, unfermented. <laughs> uh, just in case, in case anybody's wondering, but I have no problems at all with anyone who likes the um, fermented variety in small quantities. Um, this, is, this is our kitchen table and this is a communion meal. Now, probably aren't many of you who would have been at communion meals back then in our home, but this is how we did it. It was stew and it was, you know, the, the, the meal was designed that there was a lot of bread involved and there was a lot of grape juice involved. And it was class. It was absolutely class. Um, it was joyful. It was... There was family, there was community, there was friendship. And we feel God really calling us back to that. The pandemic has made that difficult. And there's still restrictions in place that we need to respect and make sure that we don't act in a manner that is reckless or careless or or flies in the face of government advice that I believe as Christians we're called to honour and respect. Um, But we want to start to move back towards the idea of community meals. So I want to talk about the power of, the, of a table. I want to talk a little bit, just give some biblical background to this, and then just some simple ideas about how the power of a table could be used to address these things that we really want to see happen in the life of the church. John Mark Comer, who is a pastor in... Portland, uh, he says, the happiest human beings ever are is around a table with family and friends. Do you agree with that? I think I do. I experienced it last Sunday night. Linda's dad, it was his birthday, and we had a meal at the Bronte Steakhouse. Uh, There were, I think there were about 15 of us there. There was one family couldn't go because a member of the family had to self-isolate at the last minute. But there was a lot of joy there. There was a lot of laughter, a lot of carrying on, a lot of silly stories being told. Uh, People who maybe don't see each other as often as they would like to were all together. It was beautiful. We were happy. We felt good as we were there eating our meal. We felt good as we left and departed. We were really happy. The happiest human beings ever are is around a table with family and friends. I believe that. I've been to some happy places. I've been to football matches. I've been to concerts. I've been to to big events that are really enjoyable and I have great memories. But the happiest people are to be found around a table in community. About 60 years ago, the average meal time for a family was an hour and a half. It is now 12 minutes. (laughs) We're not good at this. We have brought fast food into our homes. Even if we're not getting a takeaway, we're still eating really fast. Some mental health professionals are saying that this, one of the main solutions for well-being and emotional health is actually quite simple. Eat together. 
as family and friends in community. And there is a direct link. There was an article I was reading last night from a, a, an American <clears throat> magazine periodical thing that was saying that the, there's a direct link between families who eat together and then how their children develop emotionally, academically, socially, all sorts of things because they take the time to sit and eat together. If we look back at Israel's history, we'll see the importance of meals together in that. Genesis 3, <clears throat> excuse me, you'll know that in Genesis 3, everything went wrong when Adam and Eve ate the wrong food. They ate out of the presence of God. They went away from God's presence and they ate the wrong thing. And sin came in and there was a break in relationship, fellowship, community. There was a breakdown in the relationship between Adam and Eve. And there was a breakdown in the relationship between humanity and God because they had ate the wrong thing. And God in, in Genesis 3 provided through a sacrifice a covering for their sin because he is determined to have relationship with humanity. He is determined to have relationship with humanity. And when you get on through the Old Testament, you will find this same theme over and over again, maybe most clearly in Exodus 24. If you're in Exodus 24, I've finally got there. In Exodus 24, you've got the the children of Israel who have got out of Egypt and they've got to the mountain. And God says at the start of Exodus 24, he says to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. You're to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near. And what happens in that passage is they offer sacrifices. Now, this is an important sequence. There is a sacrifice. There is a covenant in blood. It's messy when you read about it, okay? There's a covenant in blood. Sacrifice, altar, covenant. And then at that point, they do something that we tend to overlook when we think about the Old Testament sacrifices and the way that these, these things took place. In Exodus 24, 11, there's a beautiful verse where after they have sacrificed, they have established a covenant in the blood of the sacrifice where they then see God and they eat and drink. That is a powerful, powerful thing. You know, I could have left that for fill in the blank. They saw God and, and you might think they fell down and worshipped him or they quaked with fear or they were terrified and they ran off. They saw God and they just sat down and they ate and they drank in the presence of God. And once again, human beings are eating in God's presence because of a sacrifice that's been made, blood that has been shed, a covenant that has been established between human beings and God. And they are eating in his presence in Exodus 24. In Deuteronomy, this is interesting. Let me just take the time to read this because I think we should do this. <laughs> uh, be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe, that's the tenth of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God, at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. So the people are told, 
10% of your income, which is in the form of livestock and crops and wine and oil, olive oil, 10% of that, it's not the tithe that you give away, it's the tithe that you eat. You're to set aside 10% of your produce to eat yourself in the presence of God. If the place where God is is too far away and you've been blessed and you can't carry your tithe, okay, because you've got so much stuff that you literally aren't able to transport it from, from home to, to where God's dwelling is, the tabernacle, exchange your tithe for silver, take the silver with you, go to the place the Lord your God will choose and use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink or anything you wish, then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Now, our treasurer is not here, so I'll be mischievous. These people took a tenth of their income and set it aside for feasting and partying together in the presence of God, celebrating as a community in God's presence. Now, I looked up last night, the average income in Northern Ireland is £28,000. Let's say there's about 25 adults here. If we multiply 28,000 by 25, we get 700,000 pounds combined income. If we take 10% of our combined income and set it aside as a budget for feasting together in the presence of God, we've got 70,000 quid. That's about 1,300 pounds a week budget for us to get together and feast and have a good time. Are you up for it? Yeah? Yeah? I think so. Um, do you know what? That's about the most you've laughed since the masks went on. <laughs> about 1,300 quid a week to feast and celebrate in God's presence. This was important. This was important. And it was joyful. Eating together. And I don't expect you to read this. I just put it up in this format so you can see in Exodus 25, whenever... The tabernacle is being described and all the stuff that's going to go in it. And there are experts out there who who can tell you all the symbolism and it's fascinating. But I just want you to see that the first thing that's going in it is the ark. And the ark is where the blood went and the blood was to atone for sin. That's top priority, ark first. Day of atonement, blood goes on the ark to atone for the sin of the people. That's the first thing. And the second thing, after there's been the blood, the atonement for the people's sins, the second thing God describes for to go into the tabernacle is a table. The, 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 the blood, the covenant, the sacrifice for sin, followed by the table, eating together. And when you read into it in Exodus, what's on the table? There is bread on the table and there is wine on the table. And the bread is actually referred to as the bread of the presence. Eating in the presence of God. Not just eating, not just having a good time, but eating intentionally in the presence of God and celebrating what he has done. And in the Old Testament, there are different types of sacrifices. I don't know if you've ever applied yourself to a reading plan and got into Leviticus and it's hard work 
and you sometimes wonder, you know, all these sacrifices, these offerings, the burnt offering, which was like complete devotion to God where everything is burnt up. There's a sin offering where some of the, the animal is burned and some of it's given to the priests. But there's an offering called the fellowship offering or the thanksgiving offering where some of it is burned, some of it's given to the priests, and the rest of it's eaten. There's a celebration because there has been an offering made and the, thing, the offering is followed up by a barbecue, <laughs> a feast, family together in the presence of God celebrating. So was Jesus into this? Yes, he was, big time. In fact, he was accused of being a glutton and you don't get accused of being a glutton unless you're fond of your grub. In Luke's gospel, according to Tim Chester, I love this quote, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And I would add to that, or talking about a meal. (laughs) Because many of his parables are about meals. The prodigal, when he comes home, is brought to a table, to a feast, and welcomed back into family from exile and isolation. He tells the, the, the parable of the banquet that all the people are invited to, but some don't want to come to. And he says, right, forget about them. Get out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come to the meal, to the feast. The only miracle I think that's in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus provides a meal for everybody. He ate with prostitutes. He ate with thieves, tax collectors, drunkards, the outcasts of society. Everyone was welcome. In fact, the very architecture of the houses meant you didn't eat in private. People walking by on the street could see you eating and could join you. That's what happens in Luke 7, where the woman comes into the meal at Simon the Pharisee's house and begins to wash Jesus' feet with her hair. Anyone can come. Anyone can come. It is, it is and, and I know you hear about it every, every few months, but it's the absolute heart of, of this place and why it's called what it's called. We didn't call it table because we wanted a nifty sort of five-letter word that people might remember. I do remember someone who, who was very opposed to us uh, planting a church, and, I, and somebody said to me, this guy was trying to figure out what table stands for. Like it doesn't stand for anything. It's a piece of furniture with food on it. It's not like the T-A-B-L-E stand for different things. It, it, it stands for the heart of Jesus that invites people to eat in the presence of God in community and family. Jesus taught at meals. This is something I think I have realized more from watching The Chosen. Again, I recommend it to you if you haven't seen it. But uh, Jesus is so many times that he's just sitting and you suddenly realize... Yeah, right enough. That, that teaching, that happened. He was in a house at a meal. And that teaching just came out of the overflow of him being with people. It wasn't a pre-written sermon or a lecture. It wasn't planned. He was just there at a table and it happened. Love it. Tim Chester goes on to say that Jesus' mission strategy was a long meal. And what's our mission strategy? You think about this and think about how churches in general in the last few decades, how we do mission. That sounds... <clears throat> how we do mission, how we do evangelism, how we connect with the community around us, all the events that we maybe try to put on and courses that we run. Jesus' mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. 
He did evangelism and discipleship round a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread and a pitcher of wine. And he sat with people. It's so simple. (laughs) And most of his post-resurrection appearances, you read the latter portions of each of the Gospels after he has risen from the dead, I think all but one of those is at a meal. He restores Peter at a meal on the beach in John 21. He walks on the road to Emmaus and he sits down at a meal and he's revealed to them. He appears in the upper room on resurrection night and a week later at a meal and shares the meal with them. That might be important. you know. And on the eve of his execution, Jesus, I'm sure, would have thought long and hard about where to spend that evening with his disciples. You're going to meet somebody and you think, what coffee shop will I go to? What restaurant will I go to? Where will I meet them? Whatever. I only see this person once a year. Where will we go? Jesus, on that night, thought long and hard, I believe, where will I spend my last hours with these 12, which then became 11? What do I need to do with them? Think about this. We're going somewhere here. There are needs in the church. How can we meet the needs without uh, half a dozen or eight people getting completely burnt out? There are needs to be met. Jesus needed that night to teach them. He needed to teach them. And a lot of that teaching is recorded in John 13 to 17. He needed to teach them. He needed to disciple them, as always. He needed to pastor them because they were about to be ripped away from him. He needed to set an example for them, which he did in the foot washing. And he's thinking, how will I do all of these things that I need to do? Will I go to a theater, an auditorium, and get a platform and lecture them for three hours? What will I do to achieve the things that I need to do on this really important night? And what he did was, he had a meal. He got a table in an upper room. On the table, there was bread and there was wine, just like the table in the tabernacle. Bread and wine were there. The presence of God was obviously there. And he ate with his disciples. And in that context, he taught them, he discipled them, he pastored them, he set an example for them. All of the things that he needed to do, he could do at a meal. So simple. And while he was there, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood sacrifice, blood, covenant with God, celebratory meal. And Tom Wright wonderfully says of that night, when Jesus wanted to explain to his disciples what his death was all about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And I think, do we? (laughs) Have we? Pre-pandemic, we once a month would have had glorious meals here on a Sunday after church with lots of grape juice and lots of bread and nice wee buns afterwards and coffee. And we would have been here to three o'clock or four o'clock. The pandemic obviously had to shut that down. But as far as I understand from the restrictions at the minute, we can do that again in a well-ventilated room with appropriate social distancing and, and hygiene that it is okay. But I wonder when Jesus says this, I wonder when he looks, even in normal circumstances, when he looks at his church, does he look and say, this is not what I meant. (laughs) The wheat crumb of bread or a cracker and the little thimble of 
oh, vile tasting juice. A convenience, quick, doesn't take much time, no hassle to anybody, no cleaning up involved. I wonder, does he look at that and say, you know, I'm glad you're at least doing that, but it's not what I meant. It's not what I meant. And I wonder sometimes of all the things that, that we do as a church, as, as, you know, globally as the church to follow Jesus, is this the one that we have messed up the most? You know, we'll preach and we'll sing and we'll evangelize and we'll do all, but this simple one that takes a few hours is the one maybe that we have neglected and watered down to the extent that some religious groups will even stop people from coming to the table. I think that is one of the most despicable, disgusting things that can happen in a church. You are not allowed to partake of this community fellowship meal because you're not good enough. I hate that. I hate that. Anyone can come to the meal. The prostitute can walk in off the street and join the meal and Jesus doesn't tell her to go away. Okay? It is wide open. The early church picked this up in the book of Acts just to show you the emphasis at the end of Acts chapter 2. Three times we've got it that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. That doesn't just mean communion. That means meals. Every meal in a Jewish family in a Jewish home would have been referred to as the breaking of bread because daddy got up, broke the, the, the bread and distributed it to the family. That was the meal. Later on in the chapter, they broke bread in their homes and you have it a second time. Later on, they ate together and you have it a third time, emphatically. This is what the early church did and we've drifted from it. If you look at church architecture and you look at the focal point of the church, it's quite interesting to take a wee run back through history. Right now, if somebody has a blank check in a big congregation, they're going to build a church that's a bit like a theatre that will have a stage and the focal point will be the stage. That's fine. All right? That's to allow as many people as possible to come in, hear the word, whatever. That's where modern church architecture probably is. Um, prior to that, a few centuries ago, we had the box. I'm sure there's probably a better name for it, but that's all I could think of, which was basically a little box building with a pulpit. And the focal point of everything was the pulpit in the church. Everything was directed towards it. And then prior to that, for centuries and centuries, from probably about the 4th century in Rome, where Christianity became the state religion under Emperor Constantine, you had cathedrals. And the focus of a cathedral was the altar at the front. And cathedrals are magnificent. I love them. I love the idea of this stunning building for the glory of God. But they're not very practical. And the acoustics aren't great. The one before that, in the early church, was the home. And the focal point was the table. And you read Paul's greetings. You know the wee boring bit at the end of each of Paul letter, Paul's letters where he says, greet this person, greet that person. You see it over and over again. Greet, greet Phoebe and the church that meets in her house. Greet such and such and the church that meets in his house. The focal point is not a pulpit, an altar, or a stage. It's a table. And that's where they did church. It wasn't something, their weekly gathering would have been Sunday night because remember in that culture, Sunday was not the Sabbath. Saturday was the Sabbath. Sunday, Sunday was a regular work day. 
So they didn't meet Sunday morning, they would have met Sunday night. And the meal was not something they did before the important bit or after the important bit. It was the important bit. It was the important bit where they sat around, <coughs> shared life, remembered Jesus, discipled, taught, loved. That was the focus of it all. According to John Mark Hicks, long quote, but let me read it. It appears that the practice of the Lord's Supper in the early church was very different from ours. Their supper was home-based, a full meal with food and drink, an interactive fellowship at a table and characterized by joyous celebration. Our practice of the supper as silent, solemn, individualistic eating of the bread and drinking of wine is radically dissimilar radically different from the joyous communal meal that united Christians in first century house churches. Here's your Latin lesson for the morning. The word companion is from Latin com panis. Com means with, panis means bread. Friendship and companionship and family and community is developed when we eat together. And what happened in Acts was that God added to their number. So, what? What are we thinking about? What are we planning just as, as I finish off? How, how can this work? Remember the dilemma that I told you that we have back at the start? Their discipleship needs to take place. Mission, evangelism, invitation needs to take place. Pastoral care needs to take place. Teaching, community and friendship needs, all of these things need to take place. And I guess one of the things we've been praying about and trying to think about is, is there something we can do that sort of just lays a completely level ground that everybody can come to, anybody can come to. And this is what we feel God is leading us to, the, the idea of the table. Following Jesus' example where he did so much of his pastoral care, teaching discipleship around meals. Having the attitude of Holy Spirit, we will create a space. You come and move in it. You come and move in it. Holy Spirit, you are not restricted to moving after we've sang three songs and feel appropriately ready for you to move. Holy Spirit, you can move as we munch on some stew and bread together and talk across the table. You can move in that conversation. And you can empower one member of the body who's, who's not in leadership to pastor another member of the body because the body should minister to itself. Yeah? We create the space, Holy Spirit, you come and you work in it. The lonely person who needs community and fellowship and friendship, who can come in, who maybe can't come in on Sunday morning because Sunday morning's a big jump culturally for them, but they could come in sometime and sit down at a meal and Holy Spirit could move in a conversation between you and that person and just start to develop trust, friendship, community, start to kill the demon of loneliness. You know, hospitality, the Greek word for hospitality in Romans is Philozenia. Philo means love. Xenia means the stranger. Hospitality. Loving the stranger. Doors wide open, not only for ventilation, but so that anybody could wander in. We could get links counselling and the GP to refer people. 
instead of, of, of us referring people, they could refer people. They could say, you know what, community would be really good for you. There's a, there's a group of people down there that have a meal once a week. Just, just show up. Here's a phone number if you want to talk to somebody first. And just, just go in and enjoy community. You know, some people never eat together, never eat at a table with somebody else. We take that for granted. What a, what a treasure, what a privilege it is. But some people every night on their own. Every single night. Only the TV and the bad news to keep them company. It would strengthen relationships within the church. It would strengthen relationships with newcomers. It would help to integrate people who feel that they're sort of on the edge, not quite really part of the community. I believe we believe in healing community. The number of people in recent days and weeks that I have told you can get help short-term in lots of different places, and I recommend it, and you should get it. But long-term, you need to be in community. You need to be in the community of God's people long-term to see transformation and healing come in your life. A safe place. I say a place of invitation, an easy place for somebody new to come to. You might have a friend, and you'd love to bring them in, but you know Sunday morning's a bit too much when we start singing. <laughs> but you think, oh, I could bring them to a feed. That's a lot easier. And it's a catch-all event. We had, we had looked at possibly running Alpha or running Freedom in Christ, but all of those things are good, but they're probably good for a, a certain group of people and others would look at them and say, I don't need to go to that or that's not for me or whatever. But everybody needs to eat. <laughs> no one is ruled out. Young and old could come. If we do this, we will do it during the week and we will do it early evening. That coincides with a normal mealtime. So it's not like a night out. It's not that you're looking at your schedule on Sunday night and thinking, oh, I have to go to this extra night out and lose the whole evening. No, instead of eating at home, come here and eat. Simple. Save yourself the time of preparing and cleaning up. Come here and eat together. Go home, enjoy the rest of your evening. You're not losing a night. Nights are precious. And it's not to take up time. So it works for families. You can bring, you can come. Doesn't matter how young your kids are. Early evening, you can bring your kids along and, and they can be part of it too. And the kids can have a blast as well. Our kids loved those nights that our house was just full of people. Loved it. Dog didn't like it, but the kids liked it. The churched can come. The unchurched can come. The followers of Jesus, the seekers who are curious and just want to be around Christians a wee bit can come doesn't matter about your education, your income, or your background, you can come. No one feels obliged to attend. If work goes on late or you're absolutely knackered, you don't sort of think to yourself, I have to go to this stupid thing because it's a course and I have to do every week of it or whatever. If you miss it, that's fine. Come back next week. You don't feel bad if you miss it. You don't feel like you've let somebody down. If 10 people come, we'll have a blast. If 30 people come, we'll have a blast. It'll be a success no matter what. Right? It's not governed by how many people show up. So it's a simple obedience. It's, it's not just a sort of strategy for trying to do all of these things. It's just a case of saying, right, let's do this. We did it before. We can now do it again. Let's do it. And if you can make it, come. And if you can't make it, don't feel guilty about it. But I believe it could become the highlight of the week. I love Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings are really important, but I believe a meal together could really become a very special. I can see the place. I can see it on dark autumn nights and tables and flowers and candles and music and laughter. I can see it. 
and just half an hour chatting to somebody and then maybe 20 minutes chatting to somebody else and loads of buzz, loads of ministry and love going on. So that's what's on our hearts. And we just wanted to share it with you. Keep an eye on, on WhatsApp and we'll let you know. We might try it on Thursday. Um, and we might, once we get feedback from people, some people might say, we can't do Thursday, we can never do Thursday. And then maybe one week we could do Thursday and another week we could do a different day to make it accessible for as many people as possible. But I'm excited about it. <laughs> and I think it's, it's true to who we are and how we were birthed as a, as a community and as a fellowship. Let's... Let's pray.